We've already talked about the uniqueness of the Bible. We talked about the trustworthiness of this text. Do we have what the author in the first place wrote? These very special editions of the Bible Live broadcast make you, particularly as a believer, excited about God's Word, the fact that God has spoken, He has acted, and He has caused there to be a written record of His actions. Now, God is still acting. God is still speaking. The same sovereign God who ruled over the affairs of men and nations in the times of Abraham or Moses or in the New Testament in the times of the Roman Empire and so on, the same God is ruling in the affairs of men and nations today with the same priorities, with the same purpose in mind, calling out a people for himself. I will be their God. They will be my people. But the Bible is so crucial and so vital to us because, one, the plan of redemption had to be carried out in time and space. So God's Son became a man. The incarnation occurred, and Christ carried out the work of redemption in history. We have a record of that, a record that we can trust in. Secondly, of course, as we see God dealing and working with real human beings in time and space, we can extrapolate from those experiences because God doesn't change. He is immutable, one of those wonderful attributes of the God of the Scriptures. We can get to know the God of the Bible and His ways, and we can apply them then to our lives as well. Now let's get to our topic for the evening. Tonight we're moving to a new topic. What is the evidence that the Bible is actually God's Word? And when we say God's Word, we're not talking about a mechanical thing where God took Paul or Moses and moved his mouth and made him say certain words, but a dynamic speaking where God involved in this individual's life spoke through this person, through his personality, through his culture, through his intellect, his understanding, and God expressed the truths about events that he had seen and watched. Often the writers of the scriptures were describing things that they themselves did not understand. God condescends at times to man's way of thinking. Ezekiel, for example, talks about the wheel within a wheel. And John on the Isle of Patmos talks about things that in some ways were overwhelming to him, as they were to Ezekiel, as they were to Daniel and other prophets who received these apocalyptic visions and understandings. But God is at work speaking in and through these individuals. That is what the Bible claims for itself. Over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, authors and writers of the Scriptures wrote, Thus saith the Lord. This is not me. God says, not only in the Old Testament, but throughout the New as well, as the Scriptures rolled out, there is one consistent message, but there is a constantly developing and sharpening revelation of God and His plan. There's one God and one Redeemer, one redemptive plan, but the revelation of that plan is progressive. We see it carried out through these 66 books we call the Bible. So what is the supernatural aspect of the Bible for which we would call it the Word of God? Some of these will be in different orders if you do this study on your own, but I'm going to mention five reasons classically or traditionally understood that we can see this as a supernatural book. The first reason we think of the Bible as God's Word mentioned when we talked about the uniqueness of the Bible is this miraculous supernatural continuity, this consistency over time and over many, many obstacles. The continuity of message, the continuity of word worldview, even in the attributes of the God that it presents and speaks of. Some people falsely say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. When anyone tells me that, I'm almost certain they have not read the Bible at all because the God of the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. So that uncommon supernatural accuracy is actually one of the reasons that we think of the Bible as God's Word. The second, I've heard it characterized as the Bible has the ring of truth. If you have ever read mythology, if you have ever read made-up stories, they have the feel of a made-up story, and you would know the difference immediately. For example, if you read the Koran, if you read the Book of Mormon, 
some of the Book of Mormon is just whole huge portions of the Bible, but they read differently. The Bible has the ring of truth. It explains human reality perfectly, how we feel, how we react, how we would perform in different situations. And the Bible does not cover up the flaws of its heroes. King David, we know him as a great king and a great man, one who loved God, but certainly the Bible does not cover over his sins. He himself openly confesses and repents of those sins and flaws in Psalm 51, for example. There is no fanciful or mythological. Yes, there are miracles. We're not talking about the idea that there is no supernatural. Many people reject the Bible purely on the basis of an a priori or a presumed assumption against the supernatural. That we don't do. We let the text speak for itself. But things are done with a purpose, with a meaning in a context. The Bible has the ring of truth to it. We've mentioned now the miraculous continuity, the harmony, the preservation of the scriptures. In light of its astounding claims, we would expect an uncommon supernatural accuracy, and that's what we find. The ring of truth, the Bible explains human experience as no other does, from our individual feelings and thoughts to the very nature of men and women in their groupings, their responses and reactions toward one another. The Bible clearly speaks to a very real world, the true condition of humanity. Thirdly, reasons that we believe and know that God has indeed inspired, God has breathed this word through the prophets and through those who wrote as the Spirit of God moved upon them and acted upon them to write, is the prophecies. Now, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Prophecies about individuals. Think of Gideon, for example, who was told what he was going to see the next morning when he put out the sheepskin. One day it would be dry, the next it would be wet, and so on. We see God acting in human couples and families, children, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see so many predictions. Things were said that were going to happen ahead of time and that they did indeed happen specifically as they were predicted. And, of course, the more famous, the more well-known of these are the proclamations about nations, about armies, about battles, about the weather, famines and droughts that would come and difficulties that God would bring upon different people in his judgments. Some of these were given a day in advance, a week in advance, a month, or two months. Others were given 5, 10, 15, 50 years in advance or 100 years in advance. And as you listen to the Bible Live broadcast as we go through the Scriptures each and every year, we point them out and you get to hear them yourself as they were given in time to individual prophets and then we can see their fulfillment. The prophecies fulfilled in the Old Testament scriptures are very, very interesting and very important for us because this is one of the primary ways that the prophets themselves established their credibility as speaking from God because they proclaimed what was going to happen before it happened. And then in 100% of the cases, not like Edgar Casey or some guy who reads horoscopes and maybe one time out of eight gets something right. These prophets spoke with authority, with specificity, and their prophecies were fulfilled 100% of the time, exactly as things were predicted. There are a very special group of prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that have to do with Messiah. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the first prediction of how God was going to send a Redeemer. Now, God was not up in heaven wringing his hands and responding to man's rebellion when Adam and Eve sinned against God. The plan of God was set from eternity passed. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world. God does just as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. It's one of the descriptions of the sovereignty of God. 
So don't get the idea that God was up there making things up as he went along. This was God's plan from eternity past. And part of that plan was that for those who fell into sin in its consequences of death, spiritual separation from God in the Godhead, the Son, the eternal Son, would humble himself and become a man. He would not act out on his own authority, on his own power, on his own rights as God, but that he would humble himself and live under the yoke of faith and trust and obedience to the Father, just like any other human being is commanded in God's word to do, just like the perfect human being would do. There are over 300 prophecies about this individual scattered throughout the Old Testament, what he would be like. There were different names and titles given to him. And these are just the verbal prophecies, like Micah in chapter 5 predicts that the Messiah would be born in the little city of Bethlehem. Others talked about him being from Nazareth, how his ministry would take place out of the provinces of Galilee in the north, which was really where Jesus exercised most of his ministry up around the Sea of Galilee. There are other specific things about him, his birth, his ancestry, and events that would happen in his life. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus the Messiah. Now, these prophecies surely represent a supernatural seal of approval that God has placed upon the words of the prophets that were written and preserved for us in the scriptural text. Who else can do that? The Bible asks several times. Now then, we've talked now about the miraculous continuity and preservation of the biblical record. Then the ring of truth, the fact that the Bible explains human experience perfectly and clearly. It's not fanciful or mythological. It is a powerful, miraculous insight into the human psyche and human experience. Thirdly, we talk about the prophets prophecies fulfilled in Scripture. Fourthly now is the testimony of Jesus himself. This is not circular reasoning. Strong evidence shows that he indeed was the Holy One of Israel, the long-awaited predicted Messiah, through clear historical time and space evidences that we find in Scripture. But once we understand that Jesus was indeed God incarnate, the Messiah, then his testimony is clearly important about whatever he speaks on. Jesus was a man of the Scriptures. Jesus was a man that was part of his role as Paul says in the book of Philippians, to live under the yoke of dependence upon the Father. Jesus openly says that. I do nothing that the Father has not taught me or shown me to do. I do nothing of my own power, my own initiative, my own prerogative, my own rights and authority. I do only what the Father leads me to do. That was Jesus' job as the Messiah, to come and live out the perfect life of faith and trust in obedience to the Father. We've talked about that a lot as we read through the Gospels, so that you begin to see the life of Jesus and appreciate and the incredible accomplishment, the thing he accomplished on our behalf with his life. Jesus was a man filled with the Word. He learned the Old Testament Scriptures as a child, as every Jewish child did. And every time you squeeze Jesus, when he got pressure applied to him by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, his disciples, or questions from the people of that era, out came the Bible. So many of the things that Jesus said that we give him credit for, you will find the source of those sayings in the Scriptures. Jesus quoted the Scriptures constantly, Clearly, he had the highest view of the Bible. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, are you truly the son of God? If you are, turn that stone into bread. And Jesus says, it says in the Bible, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the Pharisees asked him questions, tough questions about marriage, Jesus constantly appealed to the Bible. 
He cleansed the temple, and he justified that action of cleansing the temple on the basis of the scripture. He submitted to the cross and to that kangaroo court that he was put through. He submitted to that persecution and to that abuse on the basis of the scriptures. He constantly pointed the Jewish leaders themselves to the scriptures because he said, they talk about me. Look in John chapter 8. If you were truly followers of Abraham, you would follow me. The scriptures talk about me. They give witness of me. Jesus quotes from almost every book in the Old Testament, even John. Jonah and the great fish. He talks about Jonah being three days and three nights in the great fish was a sign that Jesus was going to be in the tomb for three days and three nights and then be resurrected. The testimony of Jesus is probably the most powerful testimony for the supernatural sourcing of the Bible, that it is indeed the word of God. And if you want to know the truth about human experience and our reality that we live, you must read this book because the purpose of his writing was for him to reveal himself to us. And it's a lifelong adventure and thrill to get to know the God of the Bible. Another one final evidence that the Bible is God's word it is life-changing. So many times we see men and women whose lives are transformed by the message of the Scriptures. God's Word changes lives. Listen to this passage from Psalm 19. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb, the honeycomb. This book changed and transformed my life. A little illegitimate Apache Indian baby abandoned at birth, left on the streets to die. A fortune teller lady came by and picked me up and saved my life and raised me and protected me for five years before I was put into a home for homeless and delinquent boys. I was a formula for failure, for a tragic life. I've met and seen over the years and ministered to minority youth with no family, no parents, no father, no background, and I've seen the odds against that kind of individual, and yet God got a hold of my life through the Scriptures. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he has become a brand new person. Old things are passed away. All things are become new, and I experienced that in my own life as God changed me from that helpless, hopeless little minority kid with no past, no present, and no future. God changed me and made me a child of the King. He changed the way I saw and understood myself, and that changed the way I responded and was able to love and care about others. Over the years, I've met prostitutes and drunkards and drug addicts and people caught up in all kinds of perversions and difficulties of life, up and outers and down and outers. I've seen their lives transformed by the power of this book and the message of redemption. There's a wonderful story I read about Harry Ironside, who was a preacher of, I believe, the early 1800s, maybe the early 1900s. He began his ministry in San Francisco, and I can't remember exactly all the details, but he was walking through San Francisco at some point, and he found a group from the Salvation Army singing and giving testimonies on the streets and preaching. They recognized him as a pastor of the city and asked him if he'd like to share his testimony, which he did, told the story of his own redemption and of his own coming to Christ and repenting of sin. And there was a prominent socialist agnostic in the audience that night who passed a card to him after he had spoken and said, I'd like to have a debate with you over in the science hall here in the city. I'd like to debate with you a week from now. And uh, Harry Einstein said to him, I'll gladly do that. I'll change my schedule to be with you, but only on one condition. I want you to bring to that meeting a man and a woman, one man and a woman 
whose lives have been transformed by your message of agnosticism and atheism. Show me that they were caught in the depths of sin and degradation and that their lives are transformed by your message of atheism, your message of agnosticism. And then I will bring 150 men and 50 women on my side who will give witness to the fact that their lives indeed were transformed by the power of this message. I remember the guy rejecting the offer of a debate on that basis. But these are some of the great evidences that we see tonight that this book will keep you from sin, as I was taught when I was very young, but sin will keep you from this book. This is a supernatural book, my friends, and I want to encourage you, don't ignore this book. Don't let your pride and your arrogance against authority, against religiosity. Yes, human beings are full of sin and deceit, and things are done in the name of God, in the name of Christianity that are wrong. The Bible talks about priests and believers who abuse their authority and power and who are false teachers and false priests. But the truth of this Bible is there for you to get to know the God of the Bible and to have eternal life and forgiveness of sin and cleansing. All of that can be found in this great book, which we can rightly understand to be and to experience to be in our own lives, the very Word of God. See you next time, folks, here on the Bible Live broadcast.